Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. You don't have to be a psychologist to have a decent understanding of depression. Maybe you've experienced it yourself, or you've seen it in others. The lack of enthusiasm for life. The ennui. The life that used to be in full color now is black and white. But according to Dr. Margaret Rutherford, sometimes depression is less noticeable, less obvious, maybe even hidden. She describes a syndrome, perfectly hidden depression, when perfectionism masks depression. And she's here today to talk about it. Here's a little more about Dr. Rutherford. Margaret Robinson Rutherford, Ph.D., is a clinical psychologist in private practice with more than 25 years of experience treating individuals and couples for depression, anxiety, and relationship issues. She also offers her compassionate and common-sense therapeutic style to the general public through her popular blog and podcasts with the goal of decreasing the stigma around psychological treatment. Her podcasts and shows on Perfectly Hidden Depression, Ph.D., have reached thousands as she sheds light on this overlooked presentation of the disease. Before we get to the interview, I just want to set the stage to give you a better sense of what Perfectly Hidden Depression is all about. Here are the 10 defining characteristics of Perfectly Hidden Depression. 1. People with Perfectly Hidden Depression are highly perfectionistic and have a constant critical and shaming inner voice. Two, they demonstrate a heightened or excessive sense of responsibility. Three, they detach from painful emotions by staying in their head and actively shutting them off. Four, they worry and need to control themselves and their environment. Five, They intensely focus on tasks using accomplishment to feel valuable. Six, they focus on the well-being of others, but don't allow them into their inner world. Seven, they discount personal hurt or sorrow and struggle with self-compassion. Eight, they may have an accompanying mental health issue, such as an eating disorder, anxiety disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, or addiction. 9. They believe strongly in counting their blessings as the foundation of well-being. 10. They may enjoy success within a professional structure, but struggle with emotional intimacy in relationships. Dr. Rutherford, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here, Karen. And please call me Margaret. Okay, and I'm Karen, so yeah, (laughs) that makes it easier. So let's talk about your book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression. And you've titled this syndrome, you call it, Mm -hmm. Perfectly Hidden Depression, which is 
perfectly, uh, it's apropos to what it is because perfectionism is such an integral part of this syndrome. And maybe just to start off, help listeners understand a syndrome versus a diagnosis, because you're very clear this is not a DSM-5 diagnostic category here, but it is perhaps something that is going on really uh, amongst us without everyone or many people being aware of this syndrome. And it's possibly linked to some mental health conditions and even suicidal thinking and ideation. So there's just a lot to unpack here. But let's start with the difference between diagnosis and syndrome. Sure, Karen. A A syndrome is a group of behaviors and beliefs that are found together. I think that probably the most well-known syndrome is codependence. But when they came up with codependence, um, no one knew what it was. Uh, Several people got together and said, well, what are some of the behaviors and beliefs that are characteristic of people who are trying to love people with addictions? And they came up with this syndrome of codependence. So when I began thinking about these people that were in my practice over the years that would walk in and they they would deny being depressed, in fact, vehemently deny they were depressed, but they would come in for panic attacks or maybe they binged and purged and they were in a new relationship and they wanted to try to stop doing that or they were just overwhelmed in some way, but they did not come in for depression. And what I learned the hard way was that sometimes, and when I, when I mean that, I actually had someone um, try to die by suicide and luckily I was close by and helped to prevent that from happening. But I learned with her that I needed to dig down deeper with these people and reach out not to them in the way you do with more classic depression, where you're trying to get someone to engage more outside of themselves. But I needed to help these people try to engage within themselves because the characteristic that is so prevalent is perfectionism, but also the inability to connect emotionally, connect emotionally, express painful emotions or experiences. So in the April of 2014, I had started drmargaretrutherford.com, which is my website. And I was just literally sitting around thinking, okay, what am I going to write about this month or this week? And the phrase perfectly hidden depression just came to me because I thought, well, that seems apt. And I wrote a blog post about it. At that point, I was probably getting, oh, on a lucky day, 50 shares, something like that. Well, this went viral. It it was called The Perfectly Hidden Depressed Person, Are You One? And then at the time, I was writing for the Huffington Post, and it appeared on their website the very next day. And I had forgotten, Karen, that I had (laughs) left my email address on the bottom of that post. And I got literally hundreds of emails in 24 hours, which I answered. (laughs) Um, And I was kind of struck by, well, what is going on? And, And I was just describing these people who externally or outwardly looked highly successful and engaged and productive. And they were a great friend and they were very responsible people. And yet underneath, there was a lot of trauma that they had so rigidly stuck away in whatever kind of emotional closet we want to uh, think about. And I, I want I was just trying to describe those people. And so I started this path of trying to figure out what were the traits. And I came up with the idea that this is not a, this is not a diagnosis. I would never hopefully be narcissistic enough to think 
that I had come up with some new diagnosis. Um, that simply wasn't true. But I do think, and I pretty firmly believe that this particular syndrome exists. I have, since I've started writing, I've heard of from many, many, many more people who are saying to me, this is me, you've gotten inside of my head. How did you know this was happening? So we can talk more about it, but that's kind of how it got started. Yeah. And I remember that story you share in the beginning of the book that was really troubling, also a, a great outcome, but that this hidden depression, because it's so perfectly hidden, people are in some cases suicidal and no one knows these classic signs that we are trained as therapists to look for therapists are missing it the family are missing these signs because they're not there the the classic signs aren't there because it's so well hidden they're so alienated from their own emotions and own internal experience as you put it right that's exactly right and the interesting thing to me is that we probably well interesting is not tragically is a better word that we all know someone by now who we saw in the grocery store or was the the uh, coach of our child's soccer team and they won that year and they had a great year. And then we hear that they died by their own hand. They died by suicide. And everybody kind of looks at each other and goes, what was wrong? What, what was happening? And I particularly think that it is this syndrome. And, you know, you mentioned that this does not fit the criteria for classic depression. I want to make the point that there's a description of depression out there called high-functioning depression or smiling depression. And this distinction is that, although I think these people would find themselves in the syndrome of perfectly hidden depression, I'm trying to reach them, but they know they're depressed. Mm -hmm. They know that they don't want to get out of bed. They know that they're forcing themselves to do things. They know that they don't have any joy anymore in what they're doing. And maybe they know the reason, maybe they don't. Um, Perhaps the book can be helpful to them if they don't know the reason why. These are people, really, the people with perfectly hidden depression are more in a second group, which means that they, this pattern has become so ingrained where they ignore, avoid, deny, suppress, repress, dissociate from, whichever Mm -hmm. terms you want to (laughs) use, those kinds of painful experiences, and yet they are still there and they are still influencing this person's behavior and choices. That's why I say that perfectionism cloaks or masks the depression that's really there. And it's done so well and for so long that often the person isn't even aware Mm -hmm. other than this feeling in their gut that something's wrong and they're growing lonelier and more despairing and they don't really even know why. And you shining a light on it is so important because some of the examples you provide in the book, I remember one gentleman had gone to a therapist or psychiatrist, I can't remember which, and the mental health professional had asked all these questions, but not in the right way. Something along the lines of the question should have perhaps been, um, if you were depressed, would you admit it or acknowledge it or something along those lines? Exactly. Exactly. And he ended up in the hospital, didn't he? Because he did try to kill himself. And then I think the mental health professional came and visited him and was almost a little, I don't know how to, what word I should put on it, but just 
I tried to find out if you were depressed, but you weren't giving me any answers. But <laughs> the, the poor patient thought, gosh, you know, you gave me the tools. So again, going back to these classic approaches, aren't going to figure this out because the questions we're trained to ask aren't going to access within the client what's going on. That is so accurate, in, in, at least from my view. And I've done probably about 60 interviews with people who voluntarily came forward and said, I'll, you can interview me, but I have to remain anonymous. And of course, I honored that. And these were, one man was a brain surgeon. One guy was a motivational speaker. Mm. One woman was a very prominent state. And she was in charge of their entire advertising campaign for their state. These are people who are very successful. And what they said was, the reason why we want to come forward is either we've tried to die, we attempted suicide, and no one paid attention or no one knew that I'd even done it, or people kind of looked at me and go, well, you must be depressed, and I was sent home, and I didn't follow up. Or they've said, I don't want anyone to feel or live their life the way I have lived mine. But that young, that man that you were talking about actually said, You know, the question shouldn't be for people like me, shouldn't be, do you ever feel hopeless? It should be, if you, like you said, if you ever felt hopeless, would you talk about it or would Mm. you reveal it? Now, there are people, their mental health professionals have written to me and said, well, how are we supposed to know what's going on if they don't tell us? I mean, we're not mind readers. We don't have crystal balls. We're not psychic. But my answer to that is, hopefully um, helpful. It is that if you know this syndrome exists, you know that there is a uh, constellation of things that if found together might point to this syndrome, then you can also be listening for that. As I said a few minutes ago, one of the things that I noticed about the patients that I had that would identify with perfectly hidden depression But they would be telling me about something that happened in the past. I remember well a woman who talked about being raped the week before she went to college. And actually, she didn't even say anything to me about that after I questioned her about sexual abuse until the third or fourth session. And she said, you know, you asked me one time early on if I'd ever been sexually abused. And I told you no. She said, well, and she was smiling. She was a beauty pageant contestant. And she was smiling and kind of pertly looked at me and, or yeah, perkly, no, whatever. <laughs> she perked up <laughs> and said, well, I just should tell you, I guess, that I was raped the week before I went to college. She said, I've just never thought it was a big deal. And I kind of wow. looked at her and I said, and we talked a bit more about it. She'd been drugged at a bar restaurant on the beach and had been dragged out to the beach and raped. And, but she, I looked at her and literally said, Karen, You know, if I turned the sound down and was just watching you talk about this, I would have thought you were telling me about a good movie that you watched or what you'd had for lunch. You were smiling and laughing and Mm. kind of almost, I mean, completely disengaged from what that experience must have really been like. And she just looked at me and she said, well, it was so long ago. I've just never thought it was important. But interestingly enough, Every time that she had tried to be in an intimate relationship, she had somehow sabotaged it. Mm -hmm. And so there were definitely patterns in her life that we could eventually look toward to say, okay, so this is something you need to talk about. It is something you need to process. And guess what? 
there were other things as well in her life. Well, you speak to the coping mechanisms because this is so tricky because what mm-hmm. happens, as you describe in the book, these healthy coping mechanisms that we all use. And so, for example, with this young woman, sure. there was a compartmentalization that had happened, which is adaptive and absolutely gets us through hard times. Right. But it, it had become, she had shelved that and buried it to the extent that now her, her she had completely lost touch that it was even an important episode in her life that might have been informing her her mental state and her emotional state and certainly it was impacting her relationships with men and so when these coping mechanisms get out of whack so to speak mm-hmm. <laughs> my not so technical term yeah. then, then we we take something that is healthy but it becomes unhealthy such that her affect and her the content of her story were completely disengaged and so how do we deal with that when you're a therapist or even as a person listening to this going, wait, but I compartmentalize sometimes. I think I need to. You know, I have to, I hear some bad news and I need to shelve it until I'm done with the workday because I've got eight hours ahead of me. Sure. How do we kind of navigate that when it's a healthy response, healthy coping mechanism versus one that is now becoming detrimental? Well, I think most of the time what can happen is you have to recognize we're talking about a therapist. Again, what you listen for are what are the things that this person can tell me that they've experienced in their life that they recognize their vulnerability within. I mean, what do they talk about anything? (laughs) Um, Mm. Or are they in for a specific problem? Or they, you know, I certainly dealt with a lot of perfectionism in my past and I also have panic disorder. And so I can remember going to the, th- the therapist and saying, I want these panic disorders gone. I want these panic attacks gone. And he looked at me and said, why? And I said, because I hate them. And, you know, I need to be more whole than that. I need to be healthier than that. Mm-hmm. And what I was doing, I was doing this compartmentalization of things that I held a lot of shame about. And they were definitely tied into needing to be perfectionistic and needing to look a certain way. So as mental health professionals, I think we, again, need to remember that people are, they're not going to just open up sometimes and explode all over us with their pain. They're people who can do that and are able to talk more easily about it. But when someone looks almost too good to be true, then that's, I mean, or not too good to be true, but too perfectly put together, then usually that's that could be a sign that there's something else going on. As far as your question about, but how do I know if I'm compartmentalizing in a healthy way Mm -hmm. or if I'm not, you know, you, you even said it as you were describing it. You said, I have to push this away for now and I will get back to it later. Mm -hmm. When I have a quiet time, when I'm with my partner, when I'm talking to my friend, when I'm, home from work and the kids are in bed, then I will let myself process this emotionally. I'll connect with it. And that is a healthy skill. But these folks don't ever do that. Right. They push and shove and things things away. They were maybe taught in families that you just don't do sadness. You don't do fear. You right. don't do anger. There are lots of ways to get there, which we can talk about. But this is, the compartmentalization is rigid. It is inflexible at first mm-hmm. at least. And so that's the huge distinction. I like I like that description. That's very helpful. 
And I loved when you talked about some of the, we don't do anger in this family, we don't do rules. So my two big passions, which you spoke to in the book, are CBT and family systems. So (laughs) you were hitting both of my jams right there. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yeah. And so the family rules and so many of these individuals, because just so the, the listener knows, the book is very self-help in the sense that you learn about this syndrome and then you also, uh, there's Dr. Rutherford has presented so many tools, steps, strategies, workbook type exercises yes. for you to absolutely, in each chapter, bring it home. Because I know some people, you and I, I mean, we're psych nerds. We could go and talk about this stuff all the time. <laughs> but many people, they want that practical application right away. Like, hey, I'm learning about this in chapter five. Now what do I do with it? So I right. loved the format of the book. I think it's very user-friendly and people can right away start digging a little bit to see where they can find some healing with this. So I loved that. Um, But yeah, you brought up the family rules. And I love talking about family rules because these beliefs, like you said, they can become so rigid, especially when we, A, don't even realize that they're they're operating underneath everything that we're doing throughout the day. So first we have to identify the belief and then have what I love the term from ACT, the psychological flexibility Mm -hmm. to realize... Yes, that was the that was the norm. That was what I was instilled in me covertly usually. These are not rules from the family that are posted on the refrigerator. These yeah. are very subtle but very powerful. But once we identify them, then we can go with our adult sensibility. We can say, I don't know that this rule is serving me. In fact, I think it's not. And I absolutely can be flexible enough to not adhere to it rigidly A or maybe B at all anymore. So I love that you brought that into the into the discussion. Confronting those rules is really, from my perspective, the third stage of healing. But you're right about the book. The book is definitely a workbook. I don't know why my publisher didn't want to call it a workbook, but um, <laughs> it is a workbook. And yeah. so, but what has to happen before those rules are confronted or challenged? Because after all, they have been your protection. They have been what you have counted on. If if I if my rule is I don't ever show my anger in public, and I believe that that rule has been very useful to me, or there are even times when, you know, I've decided, well, this is what this is why I'm successful, or this is why I'm having the role with in this organization that I have. Then it is very difficult to even see that as a problem. In fact, the first stage of trying to heal is is what I call consciousness, meaning you have to be aware, you have to be yeah. mindful that your perfectionism is so heightened. And actually, it's also an important point here is that it's fueled by shame. Mm. Perfectionism in and of itself and having high standards and striving for excellence and wanting the best from yourself is not pathological. And I don't want to ever give that impression that it is. But there's a difference between striving for excellence, which I consider sort of a a learning curve, a process-oriented thing that we do, that, you know, I want to be the best I can be, but I trust innately that that is something that I have within me. I'm just that kind of person. I'm very driven. I I love being busy. I, I want to do whatever I do well. But I also can accept failure and I can accept my mistakes and I can look back on something and go, well, I learned a lot. Someone with this kind of perfectionism, there are constant voices 
not hallucinatory voices, but little <laughs> gremlins. I'll steal that term from the book, Taming Your Gremlins. Little gremlins, they're sort of whispering to you all the time. You better not fail. You know, if you if you look like you're sweating, then people will figure out you don't really know what you're doing. You know, they're, they're constantly deriding you and criticizing you and constantly stay on your back. And it is that shame. You are trying to avoid that shame and you fight hard. And so you're very goal oriented. You're not process oriented. You're accomplishment oriented. And then accepting that this is a learning process is simply not acceptable to someone who might identify with perfectly hidden depression. I loved what Dr. Gordon Flett, who I've gotten to know, he's a Canadian researcher. And he said, these people are governed by the idea of what he, what researchers call socially prescribed perfectionism, meaning that the better you do, the better you're expected to do. Mm. And so it is a constant treadmill, constant pressure to always do what is next even better than you, what you did before. And just think, I, I use this example in something I, um, I did in my own podcast um, this past week. I said, what if you were given 100 math problems and you did all 100 of them correctly? Then you told yourself the rule became, I can never, <laughs> I can never right. not have the right answer. Right. You know, can you imagine the kind of, especially if you're a mathematician, which <laughs> I thought, thank the good Lord, I am not, but... <laughs> That, you know, it would it would drive you. But if, if this podcast I was doing with you, this interview had to be better than my last one. And then I was right. had to do better the next one. Be an immense amount of pressure. But that's what these people live with all the time. And you mention it in the book. And I think it's really powerful. And it, it speaks to why these rules and beliefs and approaches to life, the perfectionism, it's grounded in this it's survival basically because these strategies almost every example that you gave in the book there had been some severe childhood trauma and kids are helpless and they are in a chaotic environment oftentimes you described abuse alcoholism and the like and these kids figured out whatever way and you mentioned in the book kids in a family one might go one way i'll be the clown the family clown and, and just diffuse the tension with my antics and then someone else i'll just be invisible and someone right. else i'll be perfect so no one can ever come at me with any kind of censure and so these strategies become life or death literally for the child and then to right. think that they're just going to miraculously disappear in adulthood yeah <laughs> no I uh, call them emotional survival strategies for yeah. a reason, because it, when you think about it, we're all born into families where, you know, not a, not any family is perfect. So we we adopt um, different kind of ways of being in that family that keeps us growing and learning and at least emotionally surviving, especially if our family has a lot of dysfunction or conflict in it. Someone wrote me, so is perfectly hidden depression always a product of trauma? And it can be, but there are also people who grew up in great looking families where no one was allowed, as we talked about a few minutes ago, to really have any kind of sadness. Mm -hmm. I remember a guy I worked with, gosh, several, several years ago now, who had gone to the hospital because he was suicidal. And he definitely grew up in one of these families where it was accomplishment that got noticed and you were admired for what you could do. And he had a parent that especially, you know, the only thing he could do to make her happy was do the next thing very, very well. 
And then she was mm-hmm. very proud of him. And that's when he got loved by her. Well, he started making mistakes in his adult life that he had to hide and, and couldn't accept. And, and he did get suicidal finally. Well, he told me that his family knew that he'd been in the hospital, but they got together three or four months after he got back and they were all together. And this was for a holiday. And as the, his parents were leaving, his dad kind of patted him on the shoulder and said, well, guess you're not depressed anymore, huh? And that was the extent of what was said about a two month hospitalization. And then they knew he was in therapy with me as well. And so, you know, that was it. That was the only recognition of the kind of pain that he must've been in to want to actually attempt to do what he did. So it doesn't necessarily only take trauma. It is when children are, Yes, they can be yelled at and screamed at. You'll never amount to anything or abuse themselves sexually or emotionally or physically or neglected or, as you said, alcoholism and having to be a pseudo adult. But they can also just be a man and they can be told, well, men don't do this. Men mm-hmm. aren't scared. It can be the product or byproduct of just poor parenting and and not having any kind of how parents are. We're not modeling any kind of vulnerability themselves. Yeah, and when you mentioned that example, I, you know, not to provide any kind of excuse for this man's father, but I just think that that father was just emotionally incapable of managing or handling any of that. Yes. We look at the wounds of one generation and they're always because the generation above that wounded them was wounded by the one before. <laughs> you know, exactly. Think, you know, yeah. I have so much empathy for everyone involved because I think this poor man was like, I don't know how to handle the fact that my kid no. was hospitalized for two months. I don't know. Okay, glad you're not depressed. Okay, cool, good talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks for hosting Christmas. Yeah. You know, I, go, I know, uh, you know, I see a lot of patients still. And one of the things I really talk a lot about is therapy unlike some of the common ignorance that's out there about therapy, it's not mm. about going back and blaming parents or grandparents or whatever. It's about acknowledgement. Yeah. It's about, I can acknowledge that growing up in this particular environment may have led me or seems to have led me to being this way. And this way is not helpful to me anymore. Yeah. And, and this way is getting in my way of being a truly uh, fulfilled kind of person. and But it's not about going back in bitterness and anger and, you know, and you also actually try to have some empathy for why your parents had the struggles they had. And like you okay. say, many of them weren't parented any better. Yeah. My dissertation was on individuation from family of origin in college students, which is a typical time that we individuate. And again, from the family systems literature and so much of that work, which we all do. And of course, if we've got a client with perfectly hidden depression, it's probably going to be a tougher job to do this work, but it's to see your parents as people. Yeah. I think the a lot of these people will tell me they almost have a sense of betraying their family. Mm, if yes. they, especially if enmeshment is part of it, if they're really close and for sure. trying to please that they will sense that I'm doing something wrong by talking ill about my family. So then that's when you kind of stress the acknowledgement issue. Yeah. It's hard. I think it's hard for many of us, but it's definitely harder for people who have been so detached from that emotional component and have compartmentalized it to the point that it's under lock and key in a vault way back in the basement. And so those Mm -hmm. kinds of emotions really aren't available to them in terms of how they are understanding their childhood and what they went through. 
and trying to make sense of it as an adult. If it's locked away, there's no making sense of it. Well, and there's even a sense of why do that? That just is going to be painful. Why, why would I want to open up that box? Right. I had a, a woman tell me one time, if my box isn't big enough for what I'm feeling, I build a bigger, better box. Wow. So, you know, it's this sense of why, why get into all that? I mean, that's, I'm happy. I have a happy life. I have an engaged life. It's not until you begin to understand and listen to that gut of yours that's trying to point out to you that something is wrong, that your life isn't, it doesn't, there's not true connectedness with anyone. There's this sort of sense of, I'm, I'm sort of living a pseudo life because nobody really knows me. Nobody. If you're single, you've likely heard it all. You've been told you're too picky, you should just get on another dating app, or that you're not trying hard enough. And you're probably really tired of hearing those messages because I know I was when I was single for all those years, which is why I felt the need to bring another perspective to the dating relationship self-help genre. Single is the new black, don't wear white till it's right is my take on what the single life can be if we refuse to settle, we know that we're worth an extraordinary relationship, and we refuse to fall prey to single shaming. Trust me, it is a different self-help book. Check it out on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or on my website, www.drkarin.me, D-R-K-A-R-I-N.me. I get this question a lot too in regards to different domains, but you know, the notion of trusting our guts, and I know there's some research that's coming about neurotransmitters throughout our nervous system and even located in our gut, so to speak. And mm-hmm. so I am a big proponent of trusting my gut and I look to the to the literature that I can find on that. I have people ask me sometimes, what if my gut is off? Like, how can I trust my gut? Especially if I went through trauma as a child, or especially if I had a lot of dysfunctional behavior patterns and relationship patterns in my past, how can I trust my gut? Because isn't my gut also prone to be skewed and and to not be trustworthy because of what I've been through? I think my answer to that would be, well, sometimes your gut's trying to get your attention, but not in ways that are telling you the truth. I think when I say you've got to pay attention to your gut, what I mean is that maybe your gut is telling you something's very fearful and it's really not, but it's important to listen to it because then you say, well, wait a minute, I'm telling myself I should be afraid. I'm reacting as if I'm afraid, but other people don't look afraid. What is going on in my gut that somehow it doesn't fit with reality or with rationality? Or is your gut truly saying to you, there's something you're not paying attention to. I'll never forget a woman I worked with who definitely, she came in because of she had read some things on about perfectly hidden depression that I'd written. And she said to me one night at about two o'clock in the morning that she just she couldn't sleep. And she got up and she goes, I just know something's wrong. I know something's wrong. Maybe I could be depressed. So guess what? She went to the criteria for depression, the classic criteria, And what she walked away with was this intense sense of shame that she had even suggested to herself that what she was feeling could be depression because she had such a better life than those people that were described there. She wasn't hopeless. She didn't feel helpless. She enjoyed her activities. 
she was engaged with other people, her, her description of engagement at least. And so this effect of this shame was even more so because she had deigned to think maybe there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, another one of these uh, traits, and we might could, you know, the traits are perfectionism with it, again, this intense sense of shame fueling it, being highly overly responsible. People like this will say that they'll do something new and I'll ask them, so what are you going to take off your plate? And they just laugh at me like, what What are you talking about? I'm not going to take anything <laughs> off my plate. I'll just get up earlier or I'll work longer. They're actually very overly analytical. They like staying in their head. They will say things like, I'm not a crier, or they'll laugh and say, if I started crying, I'd never stop. And so they Mm -hmm. love to stay very analytical. And I had one therapist that did an interview with me and she said, you know, it is interesting because I've always thought of perfectionism as more tied in with control or anxiety, but never with depression. Mm -hmm. And so I guess we're trying to sort of, I'm trying to shine a light on another aspect of it. They discount definitely any kinds of painful experiences they've had. They'll say, oh, I I didn't have it near as bad as anybody else. In fact, I remember, Karen, there was a woman who I was running quickly in between sessions and this woman sat down and she was someone who identified with PhD and she, she sat down exactly where the last person had sat down and she looked at me. And she said, I don't even know why I'm here. The person before me, their problems were probably a lot worse than mine. I bet you're, I bet you're tired of listening to me. And I looked at her and I said, uh, we got some work to do. <laughs> they also count their blessings a lot and they, as the foundation of well-being, which means that they feel like they're not being grateful or they're not being faithful enough in their religion to actually think about sort of the underbellies of blessings. And what I mean by that is... Let's say in our culture, if you're a if you're a celebrity, that is something that a lot of people sort of look up to or think, well, gosh, that's kind of cool to be a celebrity. But being a celebrity is hard. There are definitely things about being a celebrity that are onerous. But people with perfectly hidden depression don't know that they can ever talk about the hard things that are in their life due to some of those blessings they do have. One of the last ones is, again, very successful professionally, because guess what? Our culture loves perfectionistic people. And a lot of professions are are geared toward perfectionists. I want my surgeon to be a perfectionist. Right. I want my accountant to be a perfectionist. But what I'm trying to say here is that when they are trying to actually have intimate relationships, they just don't know how to do it. They've often chosen someone who also doesn't have that ability, or they've chosen someone who wants an overfunctioner because they're an underfunctioner or they mm-hmm. want someone I mean there's lots of dynamics narcissistic people are often attracted to people like this because they'll take all the blame and take all the responsibility but then there's also people who are drawn they just love this person and as the more they get to know them the more they notice that they really struggle I mean something bad will happen a parent will die or they'll get fired from their job and they don't look like anything's wrong. You know, they will just not feel anything painful about that or not express it at least. Yeah. And I'm glad you went through some of the characteristics because I'll, I'll admit when I was reading them, I thought, wait, I, I think counting your blessings is a really smart move. And it's a <laughs> sure. gratitude practice is always related to happiness in the research. So, right. but yeah, obviously that underbelly piece was really key to see that. This this is so much why this syndrome is difficult to talk about because people will say, I just, 
I'm not that person who can't get out of bed. I'm not that person. I, you know, I go to work. I have a good salary. I have, my children are doing well. Who am I to say I'm depressed? Again, there's that shame. Mm -hmm. Don't talk about, you know, you're, you're, you're being too self-centered. And yet it's about being self-aware. It's about saying, yes, I have times when I struggle too. And I don't have to discount that because someone else literally is miserable and or they have a bipolar disorder and sometimes they're manic and sometimes they're depressed and or they have PTSD and they're reliving these awful traumatic things that have happened to them. And I don't have any of that. So I don't have the right to talk about my life in that way. And yet I know I've had people in my office and I'm not saying this to be dramatic, who after our work was finished, they looked at me and said, I had a plan to die before I walked in this office and began working and revealing myself to at least one person who I knew I could trust. I mean, I had one woman say, the only reason I'm telling you this is because I know you can't tell anybody else. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. but there's this shame at revealing pain that quote unquote, isn't as bad as anyone else's. I just, I try to stop people before they are comparing themselves because I often use this example. If one of your children ran up to you and they had this horrible cut on their arm and it was bleeding and they were really hurt and they were crying. I don't think you would say, well, just be glad you have an arm. Right. I love that. <laughs> I just that. don't think we'd do that. And I know we would, a good parent wouldn't do it. So pain comes in lots of different faces and shapes and forms. Yeah. And you can have the ability to recognize that, yeah, your cut is, it hurts. And it's not as bad as losing the entire arm. No, that's true. But you don't have to make the cut completely ha have no validity whatsoever just because you still have an arm. It, it's nuanced. There's always someone who has lost the arm. And if we go around saying to ourselves, any emotion I feel because I still have my arm is invalid. Exactly. <laughs> that's not living. It's not being human. You're allowed to have emotions because a cut hurts. Right. And, you know, this isn't about wallowing in some kind of, you know, vulnerability or self-pity or, uh, you know, Brene Brown has done some incredible research and talked about her work with, you know, vulnerability and shame and courage and daring to be vulnerable because, as she says very prominently in her books, you can't get to courage without going through vulnerability. I misquoted her, but it's something like that. Yeah. And she has a wonderful Netflix presentation and in it. She's talking about this and some of the struggles she's had in trying to help under, people understand that if you express your vulnerability, then you become stronger. And this guy who'd done about three, he'd been in Afghanistan three different times in the military, obviously. And he, he was a big burly kind of guy and he stood up and he goes, Dr. Brown, you are so right. He goes, I was scared when I was in Afghanistan, it wasn't until I walked through that fear that I could rush into battle. And so, you know, we think that that's counterproductive. If I admit I'm afraid, if I admit I'm angry, if I admit or reveal that I'm struggling, then somehow or another, I'm not going to be able to be courageous or be strong. And that has not been my experience in watching people grow and watching people begin to be more vulnerable, they actually come out far less afraid than they did when they were trying to suppress everything in their life that was 
mm, was just troubling or they were struggling with. And I wrote something down. I paraphrased from one of the points you made in the book. It struck me that many people, you were talking about finding some inner calm, meditation, finding, again, connecting mindfulness, connecting with your emotional state in this moment. Right. And you said many people fear gaining inner calm will cause them to lose their drive and they'll be less right. successful. And it's kind of speaking to what you're saying here. And I think it's, again, that you made the distinction before, driven and striving for excellence is not perfectionism. They are two different things. Right. And so, yeah, and we can, and people who drive, who have a strive for excellence can also have inner calm, but the perfectionism is where we've lost that inner calm, that being in touch with our emotional state. Right. In fact, I've had some people tell me when they started reading the book or actually they've come in as patients, they said, I've never thought of myself as perfectionist because just think, these people don't ever think that something they did was really good enough. Right. So how, how am I a perfectionist? I don't ever think anything is good enough. I think the next thing should be better. So I'm not a perfectionist. And so right, it's right. this game you play with yourself. Dan invented it because I kept burning my tongue on my black coffee. And then we realized the perfecter could do so much more. It's the only way to brew coffee or tea and then immediately ice it for iced coffee or iced tea without watering down the flavor. It also brings bourbon to a perfect chill, again, without diluting it or bruising the flavor notes. But my favorite application, wine. The Perfector takes your room temperature red to the recommended low 60s in just 20 seconds. And as a bonus, the Perfector aerates your vintage as well. Check out all the Perfector's applications, including bringing white wine to its most flavorful temperature at drinkperfection.com. Love and Life listeners can use promo code PODCAST at checkout for 20% off your Perfector. I guess one of the things that maybe we haven't covered as of this point is how the role of stigma is important. And that a lot of the times that people do feel like they will be highly stigmatized. In fact, what you just said about they feel like they'll lose their status, they'll lose that sense of how people look up to them and what they see in them. Or maybe they won't be considered a leader or strong or capable. And that fear often keeps them from saying anything. And it's also about stigma. You know, unfortunately and sadly, mental illness stigma or mental health stigma still exists. And I'm delighted to see that celebrities are coming out, speaking of celebrities again, are coming out and talking about that they function and within the realm of having bipolar disorder or struggling with depression or anxiety or whatever it is to sort of model for other people that you could be quite good at something, quite good at it, and also be managing a mental illness. You know, I wouldn't say perfectly hidden depression is a mental illness. Again, it's a syndrome of things that often will be linked with mental illness. There are a lot of people who have shared with me that they have some obsessive compulsive traits or they've had an eating disorder or they are struggling with a bit of an addiction because they have to have something that takes them away from their anxiety. And so... Um, and in the book, I talk about the difference between like generalized anxiety disorder and perfectly hidden depression and some of these things that are important to distinguish, because I certainly don't want anyone to read the book or to hear about perfectly hidden depression and say, well, that explains me to a T. 
if there's something else going on that also needs your attention, like bipolar two disorder, for example, or something that you could also, you could identify with perfectly hidden depression and also experience or quote unquote, have a mental illness yourself that you're, that you need to manage. Well, and that's so difficult too, because comorbidity is rampant. And I mean, we try to make labels and I don't know how you feel about the DSM with your practice, but you know, the DSM is always evolving too. It's, it's, it changes based on society's trends. And, and so I'm not a big, huge fan of diagnoses. I think we are in a state of diagnostic inflation, Mm -hmm. which I think the, here's an, here's an underbelly, a blessing of reducing stigma is now the underbelly is that now people go around, Oh, I guess I have this, this, and this, and this. <laughs> I'm thinking, right. okay. There's a little bit of diagnostic infl- inflation going on based on pharmaceutical companies as well, but that's another conversation for oh, another day. Oh, well, let's talk about that. <laughs> can we actually, okay. Can I have you back on to talk about that? That's one sure. Of I'd love points. to talk about that. <laughs> I would love. Okay, good. We've got that date set <laughs> for next yeah. time, but, Ooh, but yeah, Lordy. so yeah, and and so I love knowing that there are people who have what you have, who are experiencing what you experience, and have found hope and healing and treatment plans. That is powerful. At the same time, I worry about labels that then people can feel boxed in. Oh, I have this, so this is all I can ever expect of myself. And we see this with right. kids getting labeled ADHD when they they're three years old, and it's like, yeah, but maybe he's just a three year old boy, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I like I'm more comfortable with a syndrome approach, <laughs> actually, personally. So I like this. Well, that makes sense. You know, um, I started blogging back in 2012, and then I did the podcast in 2016. And what I was nervous about. I actually started writing more about mental health. I, I started my first blog post about empty nest. Uh, that's what sort mm-hmm. of got me started writing. And then as I told my son, I got over missing him. And so <laughs> <laughs> not really, but so what we joked about. I really wanted to talk more about mental health issues. So that's when I started drmargaretrutherford.com. And what I was challenged by was the idea of whether I was going to go on and come clean so to speak, about my own struggles. Mm-hmm. I talked with them about my patients, but that's one-on-one when it was feasible and appropriate. But, you know, was I going to tell the world that I'd been divorced twice or that I, uh, in my 20s, or that I uh, had a history of anorexia or that, and I still struggled with anorexic thinking or that I had panic disorder? Because my fear was, well, what are they going to think of me, this psychologist who has had all these problems and failed marriages and, you know, weirdness about her body image and still has panic attacks from time to time. What does she know? You know, how Mm -hmm. can she help me? Well, what I discovered instead was that people warmed to that, um, that I would get comments like, you know, we think of you as a a person who is risking talking about something that is difficult to talk about. And yet we also, you make a lot of sense or you can sometimes not, but (laughs) sometimes you can make, you're making a lot of sense about what you talk about. And so it's this mixture of, of my strengths and my vulnerabilities and what I've learned over the years and a strong message I hope in this book and in all my writing is that your strengths don't define you any more than your vulnerabilities do, nor, the other way around. They both coexist and they both are who you are. 
Yeah. I had the honor of interviewing Dr. Stephen C. Hayes, who's one of the creators mm. of ACT. When sure. he re Yeah, he recently published a book called A Liberated Mind, and he struggled with panic attacks for years, and he talks about when he was a faculty member and in faculty meetings, he would just be literally having panic attacks, and he did a TED Talk about it. And as I was reading, I thought, and then he created this therapy, this third-generation mm -hmm. cognitive therapy, and it worked for him. So. Right. To me, it just shows the power because if someone who's a professional can still struggle, right, as we all right. do, it it just normalizes things to a level where people, I think it engenders more hope. Yes. And um, I, I, I teach psychotherapy for about two hours. That's all that the medical students learn. But there's a medical school here, UAMS, and they get two hours of, of that's what it? is therapy. Yeah, that's it. But anyway, it's better than nothing. And yeah. so I remember one time I walked out, I was having a particularly anxious day and there were about 10 of them in front of me. And of course, they're all in this medical school environment where, you know, vulnerability is not something they particularly want to reveal. I can and I walk in and I say, well, you know, I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm blah, 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 blah. And I said, also, I'm pretty anxious today. And so if I sit down, don't think I'm having a seizure or I get kind of pale because I may be having a panic attack. And I, they kind of laughed and, I, and but they were they were like, uh, uh, you know, what did she just say? <laughs> yeah, what? <laughs> she so, showed weakness. <laughs> she showed weakness. That's awful. <laughs> Let's connect on social. I'm most active on Instagram at Dr. Karen. That's D-R dot K-A-R-I-N. On Twitter, I'm at Dr. Karen Anderson. Live tweet with me when I watch my favorite shows, Will and Grace, my brand new fave, God Friended Me. And of course, all shows Bachelor Nation. Join me on Facebook where I'm stepping up my Facebook Live game. I'm at Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. So I'm hoping that this book, you know, I, I quoted Andrew Solomon, who has, of course, wrote this tome that I've tried to read some of it. And it's a great book called The Noonday Demon. And it's all about severe depression and his management of it throughout his lifetime. And it has a lot of great information in it. But he's, and I'm probably going to misquote him slightly, but he says something like the opposite of depression isn't happiness, it's vitality. Mm. What I have tried to say in the book is the opposite or the antidote to perfectly hidden depression is self-acceptance. Mm. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. This okayness, the same thing that uh, Brene Brown's talking about. I just took it one step further, probably because I'm a clinician. She's a researcher. So as a clinician, I took her, I didn't take her work. I didn't even know she existed when I started researching it, but I obviously found out, but it's making that next step toward that sense of if you don't admit your vulnerability it, or, or whatever your struggles are, then you are likely to become even classically depressed. So self-acceptance, this idea that your vulnerabilities can show as well as your strengths is just so paramount to our functioning well as humans. That's beautifully stated. And I want to offer my encouragement to anyone who is struggling with self-acceptance, perfectly hidden depression, how to break free from the perfectionism that masks your depression. As we stated earlier, it definitely has a workbook quality to it. You will be able to dig in, get engaged, 
do exercises that will really profoundly help you start this journey to self-acceptance if you are struggling with perfectly hidden depression. Margaret, thank you so much for joining me today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Karen, very, very much. And where can people find out more, find you on the social media channels, your podcast, all that kind of stuff? My website is drmargaretrutherford.com. My podcast is the Self Work Podcast, S-E-L-F-W-O-R-K, with Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm on Facebook at Dr. Margaret Rutherford, Instagram, same thing, whatever. I'd love to have your listeners come on board. They actually could also email me. I will answer (laughs) at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. Great. Thanks again. Thank you, Karen. The love and life hack for this week is step out of hiding to find healing. If you struggle with perfectly hidden depression, I know this conversation has been helpful for you. And I absolutely want to encourage you to get Dr. Rutherford's book, check out her blog and podcast. There is help. There is hope. There is healing. You don't have to hide your depression anymore. As always, thank you so much for joining me this week. I really appreciate it. And a special thank you to those of you who've rated the podcast, reviewed it. All of that helps others find the show and it means so much to me. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. And until next time, make it a great day week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abril.